The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Just want to make sure that everything records okay, and then we can get into it. So, welcome to the Piercing Wizard podcast live at the 2023 BMXNet conference in Berlin. Uh, My name is Ryan Ouellette. Have you all listened to the podcast at, at some point in time? So uh, you're already probably sick of hearing our voices, uh, but too bad because you're here at uh, early o'clock in the morning on a Sunday after party night. So number one, thank you for uh, not being massively hungover or oversleeping uh, and welcome to the, the podcast. This is only the second live podcast that we've done before. We did our first one at the APP conference in Las Vegas and we thought it was pretty fun uh, so we're going to try to do stuff like this at, at more conferences uh, going forward. So go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, good morning. My name is Lola Slider. I'm a body piercer from uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and I own and pierce at Forest Piercing. Um, it is an APP studio, a UK APP studio, and um, yeah, I'm there. I work with another piercer and my apprentice, and I've been piercing professionally for about 13 years. And go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, my name is Kale. Um, I am a piercer um, and a performance artist ceramicist. Um, I am just now moving from Tampa, Florida, um, coming from a heritage tattoo and piercing out there and um, coming here to Berlin. I'm uh, literally a week in of moving here and I'm going to be uh, working at Titanin out here. So, and this is my first BMX. Really cool. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember from our conversation the other day, have you been to the APP conference before? I have not. Okay, yeah. so is this your your first conference? Um, I believe it, yeah, my first piercing conference. I've been to um, a couple of Suscons, but that's about it. Cool, Yeah. cool. Well, uh, welcome. So, the, the basic subject that we wanted to talk about and you know, we'll, we'll trail off a little bit I want to get some more info about your background and you know if we have time any sort of audience questions um, but I think that we all kind of learn new things when we come to a conference sometimes it's something very close to what we're already doing in our disciplines if we're piercers we learn new piercings or new piercing techniques but at a conference like this, you can also learn something completely different. You're a piercer and you might see scarification or implants or suspension or tattooing for the first time. And one of the things that we wanted to kind of discuss is how do you experiment safely? When you come home from something like this, I'm sure there's a lot of temptation to be like, I'm going to buy some scalpels, I'm going to buy some silicone, I'm going to buy some hooks, I'm going to just start going crazy. And how do you fold those things in responsibly? Because it's not like you need to be stuck in your one discipline forever. People grow and people evolve. People might start as a piercer and become a tattooer or anything in between, anything different. And we wanted to talk about some of the the safe experimentation. So from your perspective as someone who hasn't attended a lot of conferences, 
What are some of the things that you've seen here, maybe for the, the first time in person, or some things that have kind of sparked interest in, in your mind? Um, yeah, there's been a couple of things. Uh, do you want to focus on what things are interesting and then segue that into safe practicing or just the safe practicing question in general? I'd, let's say start with, with what's interesting. Okay. Um, The first thing that pops into mind is uh, the genital bead class mm -hmm. that Steve Hayworth taught. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and I feel like I want to go back and forth between that and uh, Callie's class on uh, the variety. I, f I forgot, damn, the name of the class. Uh, I never remember the name. Something Some about hood, like it's like a variety of hoods, right? Yeah, it was a really good class all oh, on ins and outs, ins of, and outs of hoods, yeah. Um, and those two classes in particular um, sit out to me because I want to be working in um, more genital piercings. Um, and that is not something I've been exposed to because of my location and the shop and the clientele that we uh, particularly had. Um, and so watching um, something like the genital uh, beads class was um, taking something and wanting to apply it to my anatomy. So we're looking at um, a lot of phalluses and a lot of um, outies <laughs> and um, then trying to think how that anatomy might work for non-binary, trans, or genderqueer folks as well. And so when thinking about doing that and my interest in that, um, it's really just been a lot of building of talking to practitioners that have been here that have been doing this work um, on those bodies and how that crossover might be with um, these other uh, possibilities in, in other gendered anatomies mm -hmm. or non-gendered anatomies. And so, Do you mind if I ask yeah. how long you've been piercing? Um, it's, I'm in this four years plus a pandemic year. Okay. So I'm fresh into it. I um, circled my circle was quite wide at 16. Um, I grew up in Dallas in the Bible Belt, and okay. so I was at a Lutheran high school, taught, uh, convinced my teacher that a piercer was an artist and got to shadow one for a day. That was what introduced me to Stellark, oh, and cool. that's what shifted my whole mind into the body, yeah. like the body is art, like to gain autonomy, to um, move beyond these binaries and stuff, was watching his performances because he had a book of Stellark in his studio. Really? And so, yeah, so I was just, you know, I got my, um, the first non, like, earlobe piercing, um, and uh, it's not that. What is, uh, pardon me, I'm having a brain fart on that. Like a transverse lobe? Yeah, transverse lobe, transverse lobe right, lobe. yep. One that um, someone recently was like, oh, you could only heal that when you were 16. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, he had that book of Stellark, and it was just a big seed planted, but I um, went on to play soccer through college and kind of went and got my master's in fine arts, and so it took me until I was 34 to, to be like, you keep incorporating piercings and throwing hooks and pulls and suspension into your performance work, and so um, I was just really burnt out on other jobs and wanted more autonomy and freedom for um, not having to try to fit in all these spaces. Sure. So, um, yeah. So like, so I came back in thirty when I was thirty-four and started into the practice. I'm fascinated by people that find piercing as a as a job as a career later in life, because I know that you were, you know, like a like a teen, like a child, sort of um, finding piercing. I was definitely a child finding yeah. piercing, and I feel like this microphone is not in the correct position. Well, I think it's really good representation to have somebody 
um, start working later on in life because that's one of the most common emails that I get. I'm sure you get emails a lot as well from people who are asking about getting into the industry and asking about apprenticeships and things. And one of the most common concerns that I get from people in those emails are, I'm 28 years old, I'm 32 years old, and I don't know how you know I'm going to break into this industry. It's like nobody even wants to talk to me. And uh, my apprentice, I hired him initially as a counter person, and I said, try that for a year and see if you like the work, because you might hate it, and then if you're still really liking it, we can go from there. And he was 26 at that point, um, which to me is like, I look at him as like a child, but I think that's partly his energy. <laughs> um, but uh, he'd, he was in the army for six years, he'd had multi, been around the world, he'd had multiple other jobs, and he was, um, in some ways, seemed a lot older than 26 and I think he had a, a similar feeling of how am I going to get into this industry and prove is it too late for me yeah is it too late at 26 and again like we started out very young or like I was piercing professionally from when I was 20 but before then it was always something I was really passionate about and really really focused on for that whole period of time in my teens and even in high school and I left high school at 15 and uh, went into college and floated around in college for a couple of years and then I got uh, a message one day because I would periodically go around all the studios you know, asking for work. I got a message one day saying, look, we need someone to stand out on the street and hand out flyers. Do you want to do that? And I um, didn't go back to college and I started handing out flyers on the street. Unfortunately, it worked out. Hmm. Um, but that was as, as a teenager. Yeah. Um, so at 26, my apprentice was thinking, I'm, I'm going to have to really try and convince somebody to give me a shot because I'm not like 18 sure and I was like I really like the fact that you know who you are and what you want to do that you've been around the world you've worked in all kinds of different environments you've worked in stressful environments I remember once I was piercing him and every time he would come in he would ask and he would really like so have you thought any more about this and I think I could really help you out and he really went for it and um, I was like, so what'd you do in the army anyway? And he was like, well, one of my jobs was you know, you'd go out with the dogs and you look for mines. Um, and I was like, well, that sounds very stressful. I was like, Pearson's probably not gonna be as stressful by comparison, isn't it? And he was like, well, I don't know, the mines don't yell at you. And I said, well, if they did, they'd be awful mines, wouldn't they? <laughs> um, so, don't step on me. Yeah, so uh, I think that it's really, really great to have representation for people who get into the industry a bit later because there's an assumption that you have nothing to give when actually you have more to give in so many ways. Because you have the life experience. And, and also and so many transferable skills. That's something that yeah. I also, I, I beat myself over the head with, with uh, emailing people who are asking for advice on, on how to get into the industry. I'm like, you need to focus on what you bring because you have stuff that you can offer, whether it's IT skills, language skills, web design. Like There are so many things I'm bad at that it's even having Jordan work the printer, like if you can work a printer, you are so valuable for someone to want to hire you. So even silly things, um, you need to think laterally about where your core skills and what your added value is, because it doesn't matter that you can't pierce anyone. That's what you're there to learn to do. But if you can uh, present yourself in a way where you're like, well, here's all of this stuff that I'm really good at that I think can really help your business, you kind of have to put yourself out there and sell those attributes about yourself um, and, and convince someone to give you a chance instead of just saying, I have nothing to give and I want you to teach me. Mm. So I think having someone who is a bit older is really, really like 
just a goldmine of all of these skills and all of this life experience and being able to deal with the public because it's a public you know service job customer facing job and um, I think all of that's so valuable so it's frustrating when there isn't more representation for people who are getting into the industry later yeah um, so I think it's important for people that might listen and think oh I'm you know 35 or 40 it's too late for me like it's really never too late mm. Yeah, because I, I think everyone who has a, a studio, you always get those cold calls, cold emails, like, I want to learn to pierce. Are you hiring an apprentice or something? And it's like, well, yeah, but I get messages like this, maybe not every day, but every week. And at a certain point, it's just like, well, if I have 100 people in front of me that are just like, I really like piercing, and I, I want you to give me a career, and I want you to give me training, none of them stand out. But if you have these, like, adulthood skills or life experiences or, or things that you can share with the studio that really makes you stand out so do you feel like yeah. that was a, a factor in you getting a spot in a shop or was it more of a personal connection to the person that ended up mentoring you yeah i've, I've had lots of conversations because i've also we've had some interviews at the shop that i've been pulled in for and with um um cat my um one of my mentors uh, it is there's still an imposter syndrome to it there's, there's still, still a weird, right it's, 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 it's every right it's everyone i just it's like the difference is like where is your imposter syndrome it's like oh, right. um how do you learn and i think anybody dealing with this that has ever had to take on a new job in a new industry is like how do you even figure out what those transferable skills are and how can you talk about those things like when i tell somebody i'm like oh i have my master's in fine arts and i do ceramics they're like well what does that have to do with mm. piercing yeah <laughs> and so talking about like then you have to unpack, you're like, okay, when I'm in the studio and I'm using these tools and I'm bracing this, okay, clay is like flesh. Here's how I manipulate the clay just like I would in somebody's body. But then having maybe not taught a body, but like touched a body or, or in these sorts of ways for piercing, how do you even talk about that to someone? Yeah. So you're convincing people of an, how these transferable skills can come in. So um, I think a lot of conversations that I had with friends and just talking about this so that I could unpack what it was so they could help pull things from me and extract and then I could present that helped huge. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think a lot about like, I f feel like my privilege lies in that I don't have a kid and I don't have an extended family Same and I don't these. have these things. And so when I have spoken with folks that want to come into this industry much later in life, maybe say in your late 30s, in your 40s, and I, I haven't gotten to talk to anybody in their 50s, but I just think about sometimes these are retirement ages and you see people transferring jobs in these ages um they might not like even have mods or any of these things but been so watching or on the periphery of the industry and so i think like how do you jump into being a front desk person to these sort of segues that we have to get into the industry are not going to be sustainable for someone that has three kids yeah and so how do you facilitate bringing someone in later in life with these sort of obstacles of and support in that and so mm -hmm. i think a lot about that coming in because i think for me that was easy because i didn't have that yeah um but i always have had a second or third job mm -hmm. and so part of me moving to berlin is to not like to try to turn off that hustle brain so that i cannot have three and four jobs because um, it was a lot to teach at university and peers full-time yeah <laughs> so um but you know like i think that that that's real you know i think you uh, make a good point about people um needing a flexible time not just for things like childbirth and child mm. raising but also people who come up with medical conditions and Absolutely. things that are disruptive because I worked with a, a colleague who was a, a real workaholic six days a week their whole adult life 
got to middle age and was diagnosed with a really serious chronic illness and it completely destroyed everything about them physically and, and really damaged their spirit. And they're working in a tattoo shop at the time and it took a really long time for adaptations to be made for them because, and it, eventually they were, but I think it, it's weird that in an industry where we have so much control over every aspect of it, when there's a barrier like that, the default is still, well, those are the hours and those are the days. And you're like, well, they don't, we're literally, most of us, I'm self-employed, I've always been self-employed. And, right. you know, some people are, are employed or have employment contracts and some people are just working off the books and getting paid in cash. And you're thinking, why on earth can't it be altered or flexible? And, and, and why is it that you have to work like eight hours a day, five days a week in this format and the timing can't be more flexible depending on what your role is? Obviously, it depends if it's front house, back of house, if you're offering hands-on services. But in a lot of situations, accommodations can actually quite easily be made. But I think there is still that little kind of, I don't know if it's just a fear or, or uh, a resistance to making accommodations in case you suddenly have to do it for everybody or something like that, if it's one of those kind of things. Yeah. Where it's weird that even in an industry where we have so much control over what we're doing in our businesses, um, one of the instant responses to things like, oh, you're pregnant, oh, great, we're going to have to find someone else, or, oh, you know, you're sick, like, how is that That's going to affect us really badly? And it's like, it's still just shut down just the same as if you were working in a corporate environment, which is kind of weird when you think yeah. about it, um, given the amount of flexibility that we, that we have in our businesses to make alterations and accommodations. Yeah. I mean, I just think that that's, that's kind of bizarre. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, mental health disability, um, class, these different sorts of things um, really have an impact. And I think that like when we're building this industry, so what I did during the pandemic is I went to a community college and did an entrepreneurship class to start and research on different um, piercing shops to see what their structures are, how their hours were, um, what the pay structures looked like, how they were sustaining that. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of amazing things happening with people coming out of corporate America or nine to five jobs or working two to three jobs or labor jobs into this. And we're trying to find alternatives to that. But I think that sometimes we do default into this. And I would say like, probably this is even slightly like an American like mentality towards it is like this capitalist way of like gaining money and work harder. And um, I think that you can sustain in different ways and work with other people to do um, to have these sort of balances with that. Like it's, you can, I, I do believe that you can make as much money, if that's what the goal is, in three days as you could in five days because the burnout is so real. And if you have that within the structure of your studio with people, like sometimes it's more and sometimes it's less or knowing what people's limitations are and then building a staff, a team that can fluctuate with that where you're like, okay, this person's limitations with their disability means that they might have to take this time off, but this person does better in these scenarios and finding that. Not that that's like the easiest solution in the world, but. but I think it's good to talk about because it's something that you can get better at because I've only been employing someone um, for the last year or so in terms of like they're like a legitimate legal in every way on paper documented employee and I have another piercer who's self-employed like me so right. they're an independent contractor essentially so I've never had an employee before right. with like everything that comes with that and I've been self-employed since I was 20 years old so I've never had 
holiday pay, sick leave, all I, I've never had any of that. So it's very, very different from how I work and how I interpret things. So even for me, like I got things wrong at first. There were things that I assumed that were incorrect because right. they don't apply to an employee worker. Um, right. And so I think it's important to keep in mind, like you can get better at this stuff. Like it doesn't matter if you're not very good at it. Like I wasn't right. very good at it. And there were things that came up um, where there were things that I learned that I, have, that I had to do for my employee that I had no idea that I was supposed to do. And I kind of learned them as they were happening and as it all fell out. So right. there's all of this stuff nobody teaches you how to do. And so when I um, started employing someone for the first time, it was very much like falling through the process and just like picking things up and, oh, okay, we have to look at pension stuff. We have to look at this. I didn't even set up a pension for myself till this last year because yep. I had no idea about it. Yeah. So I think it's important to keep in mind, like no one's expecting you to be perfect. No one's expecting you if a situation arises at your work that's inconvenient and frustrating for you to just instantly have all the right answers and be able to navigate it gracefully the first time yeah. or even every time but just being willing to be like I could understand this better I need to take some time to research this and understand what my commitments are and what's gonna help this situation be resolved the best way for everyone like I, I was worse at that a year ago than I am now so if anybody else is in that situation I just think it's important to keep in mind that like you can be bad at it and choose to get better but you actually have to make the effort to get better yeah. um, because there's stuff a year ago where I would look now and just be like I don't know what you were thinking with that but you know like all of the research that I've done since has, has changed dramatically the dynamic of my business and the situation that I have there with my employees and co-workers yeah. so it's it's a lot like you like you say you went to you went and learned entrepreneurship people go to business school for years to learn about this stuff and we have most of us no formal education in it whatsoever and we just start yeah. and just go which is the messiest way of doing things it's also the most expensive way oh yeah, yeah. it's the most expensive yeah. way of doing things i found yeah. out that i um, owed my employee holiday pay because i didn't realize as a part-time worker that they were fully entitled to holiday pay the same as a full-time worker unfortunately i didn't like didn't miss it for too long but i read i was reading about it and got into it and eventually realized and they didn't realize either so i kind of had the happy task of being able to go to them and say hey bit of news for you i owe you some money here's a bunch of cash and they were like but thank you great this is great and i'm like well don't thank me because it's the law and you're statutory you're statutor statutorily entitled to this i don't know mm -hmm. um so yeah you can you can like correct those mistakes and, and learn new things and um just try your best to, to put things right but yeah that was stuff that i learned about as it was happening that i had no idea about so you don't have to be perfect at it you just have to be willing to like give it your best try just the same as you would with anything in piercing it's it's funny sometimes because <clears throat> people might get into body art because they don't want to work a real job and then you maybe open your own shop or you maybe get into a management position or whatever in a studio and then you have to come back around and be like ah oh, shit to be successful as a body piercer I have to learn how to do this like a real job and I have to learn things like taxes and future planning and inventory management and all the the, the least fun parts of it um, so it's like this back and forth of like, I don't want to work a real job, but I, I also don't want to make like year one money for my entire career. And I, I want my staff to be able to grow and um, have time for their families and have time for their, their lives and all that stuff. So some of that has been the harder, the harder things to learn for me, getting into body piercing and 
kind of stumbling my way through learning things trial and error and then having to do the same thing with my business. Lots of trial and error, lots of wasted money, lots of wasted time. Um, and then bringing it back around where both can support each other. The business supports the art, the art supports the business, and all those things can support the, the people in that, that art and business. So to kind of bring it back around, when, when you come to a conference like this and you're learning new things, conferences like this can take uh, something that might be a natural progression for, for someone. It might take them years to kind of get that life experience and work experience, but then you come to a conference and you meet all these other people and you learn from their life experience and work experience and you can gain years of uh, career experience over a weekend and then you might get overloaded. Does anyone ever feel overwhelmed when they when they come to conferences like this? Or if this is your first <laughs> conference, has it melted your brain a little bit in parts? I just, I think if, if I would have done this conference when I was in my 20s, I would have been in burnout mode. But I like constantly check and I'm like, be kind to yourself. If you can't take all this class right now, you're allowed to go sit over there by yourself mm -hmm. and collect. Mm -hmm. And I've like really just tried to practice that. Like I was falling asleep last night in the middle of the performance and I was like I, I have to I have to go and sleep now because yeah. my body is shutting down right. um, so it's yeah I think there's a lot of information and people are hungry but sometimes the conversations are just as important as the classes oh yeah and so I feel like I've learned as much in some simple conversations as I have in some of the classes so that kindness of like hit your major markers and stuff but also like be kind and kind of have some rest with it as well but yeah. that's a recurring theme that I always hear at conferences like when you get to the end of it people are like I had this amazing conversation over over dinner or at the bar or out on the street or something like you know and I talked to somebody for 10 or 15 minutes and I, I maybe not so much learned more than the classes because you learn so much there right. too but it's a different kind of learning it's a different kind of like experience that you get yeah. where you might talk to someone on like a more personal one-on-one -on -one and be like oh, I had those same struggles and uh, this is how I overcame them and have you ever thought about this and they're like yeah I have and have you ever thought about this and like you learn so much so fast because yeah. you can both share your experience in this informal way um, what were some of the things that kind of really clicked for you when you started what, what was your first conference by the way my first conference i think was bmxnet okay do you um, recall the year or the general it would have been timetable 2016 or 17 i can't remember which in essen in essen mm -hmm. on perfect house um and we were actually just talking yesterday about the fact that i found out that bmxnet existed from another piercer who i met in passing who came to get tattooed in the studio that I was working at, who uh, had traveled internationally. And at that point, I knew like no other piercers, not on a personal level anyway. And just through like a very brief meeting with someone, I was connected with other piercers. I found out about this event. I eventually got the chance to go and work in Sweden. Um, just all of this really fun stuff that came from such a tiny interaction. And I always think it's amazing that like, at that time, there was a plenty of forum culture on the internet. There, were, there was plenty of opportunity for connection. But I really feel like if it wasn't for those little in-person experiences, I would be years behind where I am now. My exposure would have been so much less. I definitely wouldn't have put myself out there as much. There's just no way. Yeah. And then in going to, to BMXNet, I went by myself. 
Um, that was before I even went to a UKPP uh, meetup. I think well, there the meetups no were, there, meet up at that there, point. there was a meetup. There had been one meetup, but there hadn't been a full-on conference yet, okay. I think. Okay. Um, so I went to BMXNet, and that's actually where I met most of the other piercers from the UK, who I'd never met, having been from the UK. And they were so friendly and um, like really encouraged me to take part in things. And uh, Nikki Holmes, who had at that point was one of the founders of the UKPP, she really pursued me for involvement in it, like sent me messages and encouraged me to join and gave me opportunities to instruct. And I was just resistant the whole way. Like I think if I went back and looked at those messages, I would just be like, I don't know, I don't really think I'm the right person for this. I don't really do this kind of stuff. And she like really, really pursued me to take part in stuff. So I really feel that it's, it's invaluable in terms of that human connection that you make with people um, where they can see something in you and you can see something in them that, that gives you a desire to take part and be involved that otherwise just wouldn't be there. Yeah. But that was the first uh, conference that I went to. And if I'm being really like um, flattering to myself, I would say I understood of like, like a third of what I learned and heard. And I think that that's like a reasonable bar to set for yourself. If you're going to a conference for the first time, don't expect to understand everything. If you can understand a third, if you can understand half, like you're doing reasonably well. And then you take that stuff home with you and you try and see where it fits into your practice. And every time you go back, you're like, right, well, I have to tear all this down and rebuild it again because it's all wrong. And you know, like you do that almost every time. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really nice, first conference to come to, I think, because it is, in my opinion, the most friendly, where people care about you and don't care about you in exactly the same moment. <laughs> it's like nobody cares who you are or why you're there, yet at the same time, everyone is really caring whilst you're there. So um, I just don't think that that's replicated in quite the same way anywhere else. No, I, I mean, I would like to say that the APP conference is like all things for all people and everyone feels just as comfortable there. But um, I, I think there's there's a little bit more of a, a disconnect. There's a little bit more of that um, that barrier that goes up. People wear their armor a, a little bit more at, at the APP conference, in my experience anyway. I definitely felt like I was on the, the outside looking in at my first several APP conferences. But BMXNet, my, my first BMXNet was 2008. Um, I got an invitation. I'd like to give a shout out to someone who was performing scarification at the time named Thorsten Sakira. Uh, and now they've transitioned over into tattooing, but they were doing a, a scarification class and they invited me to, to come over and, and co-instruct with them. And that was my first opportunity to teach anywhere in the world. Um, just dumb luck. Paul King was, uh, was in, in the scarification class and included it in a nice uh, write-up in, in the point, said that I did a good job, and then that got me my, my future opportunity. So BMXNet was a huge deal for me because it wasn't like a you can't sit with us. It was just yeah. like, come sit with us, come hang out with us, come teach with us, come share with us. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, it started this ball rolling of opportunities. I didn't feel quite as intimidated. Um, and I, I just saw so many different things that really blew my mind. Like I had seen things through BME or through some BME events, but I had seen it from several steps away. I wasn't like right up there, you know, I couldn't smell the blood. Uh, but then BMXNet, like you're, you're right in it. And it's like, oh, do you want to see how I do this? Come over here, come and look, you know? And it's like, they, they want everyone to, to be included in this way that I think is very unique to this conference. Um, so this is, this is really one of my favorite uh, educational experiences, trips of the year, things like that. I, I would really never miss it unless I absolutely had to. And I think I've only missed 
aside from the, the pandemic year, um, I, I think I've only missed one or two BMX nets in the last 15 years. So, um, were there any like moments for you that were like light bulb moments or were there any moments where you kind of had that sinking self doubt kind of feeling? Because I get a, I get a mix of both no matter what conferences I go to. Um, <clears throat> since I like, I haven't been to APP, but I have heard a lot <laughs> about APP in my periphery and I've been to many other conferences that are outside of piercing and body mod but um, I think the contrast for me is like I'm, I'm living in the southern United States as a non-binary queer trans uh, body modder <laughs> and when I came here and could see a bunch of amazing, beautiful weirdos, nerds that are in this and be surrounded by like by that. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And I've been to places like, I've searched for it in different ways, not realizing what I was looking for. Like one of the first uh, conference events that really blew my mind was uh, a radical fairy retreat out in the middle of rural Tennessee. And it still didn't feel like home because I couldn't talk about, um, kink or fetish or body modifications in these sorts of ways because there was so much more at stake for gendered um, exploration and bodies and language and things like that. And so I find that when I come he when I'm coming here from the southern United States and then being in that, there's also like people from all over the world that are residing in their skin like that in these other branches all congregated in this space. And so not only was do you have these mix and matching of cultural identities and walks and embodiments smashed up against each other? I feel like that creates a different reverence. And it's also just, um, there is not, there's such a gratuitousness of sharing information and excitability and hunger that's here. And I don't feel like, like when we're, when I've been in the States and reached out to other shops or tried to have conversations, people are reserved and there's not as much sharing happening. There's a scarcity mentality towards that, be it because it's of the type of shops and class and location and stuff like that, that I haven't, I haven't encountered here so much. It's, although there's a panic of seeing folks, which is why I came up to you, Lola, because I was like, I have seen you a bajillion times on Instagram. I keep staring at you because I'm like, I think I know this person, but nope, that's on social media. I just need to go talk to them. You know, so you see all these people, so there's that intimidation factor. If you can just break that membrane and go in, people have just been really open and kind. You know, I think that that, that feels really good as I have felt so isolated and so uh, deprived of these conversations that I've just been hungry for. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I get to have them about um, blackness and uh, racism in the industry and why the why those bodies are not here or having access points or why uh, queer, trans, non-binary folks are not piercing more, how they can get in that industry or what does it look like if you don't ever see somebody like you in this industry, how do you break in? And I've been able to have these conversations and so it's if I'm having these conversations with other people here that are, then that's starting to surface and that's needed. And so that's like just been really amazing. So if you haven't been to the APP conference mm -hmm. yet, I would also say let, let's get you there sometime okay. too because yeah, yeah. Th there's a lot of representation there, but I think just the the American personality type, um, it's, I don't know really how to describe it. People care if you're cool or not in the U.S. I and know. here, I, I don't know if it's European culture in general, German culture specifically, but nobody cares if you're cool or not. They just care that you're here. Yeah. Like that's the important thing. It's just like you're here, I'm here, let's talk about stuff. Uh, and it's it's a, a bit more open um, instantly. It's like you don't have to prove that you're worth talking to. 
it's just like, yeah, where are you from? Let's talk about everything in the world, and right. I'll, I'll show you and I'll share everything. And it's really, it's really cool. Like I've learned so much here just by accidentally being in the right place at the right time. Where it's like I, I've never performed or been involved in suspension, but mm -hmm. like I know a bunch of different things about suspension because you see these amazing people and they're doing this amazing life's work, and it's just like right in front of you and they're like oh do you want to see this and this is how i tie a knot or this is how i do a whatever and it's like that's cool now you know now i have like a better lens to to understand those things I, I wonder if it has to do with like we're talking a little bit about this last night but i don't think that um, i'm trying to love i might stumble through the words um app has formed but and in part because it's trying to regulate something we don't want the government to regulate in the United States, right? And so having piercers be able to help manage that sort of thing, well, there's a rigidity to that, especially because of the laws that come up that are quite crazy um, in lots of different directions. When you come into a space like BMX.net, a lot of what's happening is not regulated. Or is it even legal in the United States? You can't have some of these same conversations or talk about these practices and share that knowledge. So this sort of like underground becomes like really protected, really guarded. Or here, that's not regulated in the same way. And so I think there's a difference between those sorts of conversations and from APP to here that mm -hmm. I think also plays into on top of that, the um, our uh, fascination with, um, with the cool kids mm -hmm. <laughs> and social media and identities and those sorts of things that happen no, like in America. It's really like talk a blended I'm thing. Sitting at the front of a of room recording a podcast, <laughs> right? With, yeah. a, with a wrestling belt, <laughs> right? Yeah, with a, yeah, that I made myself for vanity. Yeah. Well, I think that um, a lot of that plays into the the fact that like the internet where a lot of us communicate is very much set up now for perfectly formed thoughts. Mm. No, but people daren't share anything other than a perfectly formed, Not messy. heavily edited thought. Whereas in-person things like this, I think have to be for messy thoughts, for imperfect thoughts that are still being worked through. And I think that kind of comes into what you were saying about the existence of experimentation within body modification and how you slot that into um, an industry that is in some ways incredibly rigid in terms of you know ethics and hygiene and safety and all of this stuff and how do you segue that into being an untrained medical practitioner putting implants in somebody in an environment that's never going to be the same as a hospital environment like how do you manage that because it exists and it's in this push and pull of yeah we definitely want that to be going on but for me I think that um, there's a, a divergence between having to have everybody like you and support you and agree with you and being really passionate about something and kind of wanting to see it through and you can't do both and have both. So I think I, I, I can't pursue things like body modification because of the location that I'm in. If things were different legally, it would, it would probably be something that I would be more interested in taking part in, but because of where I am and, and the legal stats of it there, it's just not something that I would entertain. But um, if it was, I don't for a second think that it would be perfect. I think it would be messy and fraught with difficult ethical judgments and practices. And some people would be pissed off by it. And some people would think it was great. And you can't unfortunately have everything. You know, you can't be living this incredibly specific, unique, kind of daring lifestyle in a way, and then also have everyone agree with you and tell you you're doing a great job. You just can't have both. So for me, that's like where the main divergence is. But I know that you have some thoughts about kind of like the gray area that body modification occupies within 
an increasingly safe and regulated piercing industry? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough in the U.S. specifically because laws seem sometimes unnecessarily strict. Like, who, who is this protecting because where's, where's the victim? Um, and piercing has evolved in such a way where it, it used to have a little bit more of a, a, I don't know, like a reckless isn't the right word, but it was like people, people had space to experiment. People had space to, to fail. Um, and now I think in, in the US piercing scene, people aren't allowed a space to fail. You're expected to be perfect every time, especially if you're willing or brave enough to put some work online, people are expecting it to be perfect. And even if you go to those, those spaces that are set up to be safe for criticism, for critique, for constructive criticism, um, too many people are, are torn apart for that. So it, it kind of takes that experimentation and it stuffs it down into like, okay, I can experiment, but just within the studio and I can't share it and I can't talk about it and I can't reach out for mentorship or, or help or for, for criticism because I'll get destroyed. Um, sometimes there's legal issues where it's like, okay, I, I want to do this thing. I have clientele that is seeking out this service in, in a safer environment that, that wants to get it done in a studio uh, with some sort of level of, of hygiene and safety and skill to it, but I can't offer that openly. So how do you, how do you grow and how do you ex experiment? Like if there are people out there who are asking for things like tongue splits or implants or suspensions or, or anything that's adjacent to body piercing, but it's uh, explicitly banned, or if it's kind of shamed within the industry of like, oh, you know, you have you have scalpels in a drawer, you're a hack, you know, you shouldn't be part of our club. Um, people are still going to seek out that work, and all it does is it drives them towards people who maybe don't have the same motivations for trying to do it safe and, and trying to like do it to, to to their fullest. So there's this weird thing where uh, I think every year at BMXNet you see one or two additional. Um, you know, international attendees, American attendees too, because this is kind of that safe space for being able to like experiment openly and, and understanding that some experiment, uh, some experimentation comes with, with failure. And then you have to kind of learn from that failure to, to find your future successes. So it's a difficult kind of double-edged sword because like you, you really get destroyed sometimes online for being like, the bod mod person or like, you know, oh, that, that person's not a piercer. They're also trying to do this and trying to do that that I don't agree with, so I will kind of maybe shame them for it. But in a space like BMXNet, it's just like you hear all these conversations where it's like, yeah, I'm a piercer, but I was thinking about doing this or thinking, about, and then people are just like, just do it, do it, do it. Like experiment safely, but do it. Like run it, run it down to its fullest. If you want to try scarification, there are responsible ways to, to try that for the first time, just like anything else. And, uh, you know, maybe we could talk about some of, have you ever done any sort of like self-experimentation? Did you pierce yourself when mm -hmm. you started? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you did, especially oh, yeah. like before you were a professional. I pierced my, my cheeks. Yeah. Well, you know, I did lots of reckless things when on myself. When I was myself. in my bedroom <laughs> too. in my house. <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> taking my pants down more than once this weekend to show people scarification that I did on, on my legs. Uh, and, and after my scar class, people would come up and be like, oh yeah, I really want to do this but like how do I and it's like you have legs you know just work work on work on your legs you know you're working on yourself so there's there's no one to file a complaint or to give you a bad review or something like that um, so there are safe ways that you can experiment you could experiment on a, on a colleague on a, on a partner on a friend on a, on a regular well-informed client 
there was this whole era of experimentation in the, the U.S. industry that I think has been kind of strangled out, and not by the APP because the the APP is not anti-exploration, um, but I would say that several of the like the people within that APP bubble kind of look down their nose sometimes at people who aren't perfect on day one. Um, and I certainly wasn't perfect on day one, and I'm still not perfect now on day whatever. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about yeah. where you find the line for safe and responsible experimentation. Yeah, I mean, I've got a little, thank you for putting the word to something I've been thinking about for a long time, which is just like the uh, messiness is not possible on social media. Like that is like, I can't tell you how much I've labored over language for putting a post. So I don't post that much because I'm so afraid of not having that perfect language that the messiness is not allowed in that format. And I think that that crosses over here and it's a little bit scarier in different ways because it's bodies at stake mm -hmm. for that messiness. Um, but then I'm like, who has afforded messiness? And so I do think like, and again, I just, I talk at it from this, uh, this embodied experience, but it's like how many times I put up blinders just to get access to a space to talk with someone who's never interacted with a body like mine and then have them do something to it. Right, and so um, I think of surgeons and the reason why the difference between um, my choice in surgeries versus body modification, I'm like, well, there are so many non-binary queer trans bodies going into surgeries that they have not perfected, but they are afforded messiness. They are afforded that documentation. Where over here, that's not afforded that same sort of messiness or the same sort of experimentation. And so what I have done is defaulted to this, like it's like partners, talking with as many people as I could possibly reach out to. I mean, um, part of the reason why I'm at BMX is that the, the people that had helped segue me that I finally found to do suspension, which was going to LA, was the first time that I got, um, I met, uh, I don't know if you know Matt uh, Meister Schmerz or Matt Brawley, he's from Embrace Chaos. But I, it's a long time, so long times ago. I know there's like, right? To. So anyways, he segued me and then it was like, all right, you need to get a hold of Beto when you're in Berlin. And so once I met Beto Ray, I was like, oh my gosh, okay, this is where it's at. And that started to get those connections, but it took me a really long time, like years, to be able to do that. So I feel like part of messiness is also this like waiting period for safety. So it's like, there's an urgency sometimes to get these things done. And especially within these, like uh, talking about uh, dysphoria and then our skin, regardless of it being a queer thing or a body mod thing or a sports thing or a beauty thing, like these things have conversations that are there. But I think that the urgency that gets put in sometimes can afford messiness in a bad way. And so being able to have like both counselship and pause for finding the right space to have these things, I think is also important in that. Yeah. So, but I have totally, you know, like I think my first genital piercings were on one of my close friends that were like, you know what, I really want to build um, a harness so that my um, external labias can be open and that way um, I don't have these folds and stuff. And so I called up a friend in El Paso who had a piercing shop and I was like, how do I do this? What are the tools? She sterilized all the stuff, talked me through it, and that was like the first thing. And then they, he turned around and did the same thing to me. And I was like, all right, so I want my inner labias done because I want to do the same thing because I'm doing these genital portraits where I'm putting genitals in drag. So how do we do this? And so we exchanged that way with each other and I reached out to the connections that way. So were they the best piercing? Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> was it the best transfer? No, not at all, yeah. um, but I learned a lot. It's a completely yeah. unrealistic expectation to think that the first time someone does anything, <laughs> like I think that there's, there's kind of like a, a alpha mentality, like when you 
especially as piercers, when you maybe try a new hobby or you want to try to get into something and you're not instantly good at it and you're just like, I don't want to do this ever again. Like, you know, I remember there was, um, was it axe throwing at UKAPP one year as just, just a fun activity, not competitive. And I remember going, in my lane was myself and Sala and Christiana from Pinpoint. And we tried it and we weren't instantly like bullseye target good at it. We were just like, we're gonna leave. We're we're done. We can't handle this anything. Axe is broken. Yeah, it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, um, but it, it's just it's just those things where you have to have a, a realistic expectation when it, when you talk about experimentation. So, mm -hmm. where do you find the the line between safe and responsible and new? Well, I think that there's there's safe and unsafe, and then that's sometimes confused with legal and illegal. Mm. Sometimes people use illegal and unsafe interchangeably, which is incorrect. Like if we set all of our boundaries over what was and wasn't legal, there would be a whole lot more stuff that wouldn't be happening. Um, if we said whether or not people were solely good and bad based on what was legal or illegal, a whole lot of a whole lot more people would be guilty of committing criminal activity. You know, so like for example, when um, there was issues in the UK around uh, vulva piercings being legal or illegal, there was a, a lot of issues with that. And during that period of time, eventually I was like, well, I'm not going to offer any genital piercing until everyone can have a genital piercing. I'm not doing penile piercings only. A lot of people started doing just penile piercings only. And I was like, I'm not doing that because that's like accepting that this is okay. And I don't think that it is. So I'm going to keep trying to get clarification on this. And eventually I did get clarification on it. We got that from the Crown Prosecution Service. We got them to eventually publish a document stating that they would be highly unlikely, still not perfect, but highly unlikely to pursue legal action against someone who had a genital piercing done under these circumstances. And it was a list of like over 18 licensed premises with consent not to alter the appearance in a, a surgical way, blah, blah, blah. So like, we managed to get that in the end. But during that time period, I did know another piercer who was like, I'm gonna keep I want to just take a quick pause and I just want to yeah. I just want to stop and let that thought breathe because like sometimes people don't appreciate the work that goes into just having that that level of, of clarification. Lola was were you the UK APP president at the time when you got that clarification? I was medical liaison. Medical and liaison. I don't know if that came as when I was medical liaison or when I was president because I was working on it. I yeah. was working on it before I was on the board and yeah. it's one of the reasons I was asked to take part was because yeah. Before then, I'd been working on it because it had predated me being on the board. Yeah, but I, I just want to take the moment for anyone in the room, but anyone listening to the podcast, that if you have an issue that you believe in, that you think is unfair, like you have to get involved because no one else is going to do that work for you. It, you have to contact people. You have to call. You have to write. You have to email if you want that kind of clarification for the community to, to protect people and to, for, for what you believe is right when it comes to body piercing. And that, that kind of work just doesn't just fall out of the air. It, it takes a, a person that does it. So I always want to stop and give you your flowers for the, the work that you put in for the community. And I'm really proud to know that you did that. Thank you. But, but it was, you know, part of a group effort as well. I know, yeah. Um, but I was speaking with another piercer at that time and I was like, what are you doing about this? Like, you know, are you, are you doing it? Are you not doing it? And she said, no, I'm still going to do it. She, she said, I'm still going to do it and I've thought about it. And if I get arrested and thrown in jail, I'll I'll just deal with it because I'm not stopping doing it and I feel that strongly about it. And I was like, I'm not, good for you, I'm not going to fucking jail. But if you've made that decision, I fully support that. And I thought that was amazing because it's a lot braver than me um, for her to, to say like, I'm, I'm so convinced that this is the right thing. I'm gonna pierce uh, vulvas until I get put in jail or until this is clarified. And thankfully in the end it was, but 
if they had been arrested and they had been convicted and charged with something, um, it wouldn't mean that they'd been unsafe and it wouldn't mean that they were a dangerous person or a bad person, but it would mean that they'd done something illegal and were criminal. So I always think it's good to think about what it is you're supporting when you say like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, it's illegal. Always think in terms of what's legal and illegal doesn't always reflect what's safe and unsafe. Like for example in the UK it's been legal for years to give people injectables in their face in environments that aren't licensed by people that aren't trained. And that's something that's now just starting to become regulated. So what's legal and illegal doesn't always correlate in a, in a way that makes sense to what's safe or unsafe and to people that are good and bad. So I would just ask people to examine what they're really saying when they just say, well, that's illegal. So that must mean that that person's dangerous because they're committing a crime. A lot of things could be considered crimes or have been considered crimes that are like, you it's know. It's also a movable goal yeah. because there were things that I could freely and openly and publicly do 10 years ago that I can't do now yeah. just because of these random regulations that change around me, like without my knowledge and without really like any community or, or, or professional input, um, people can just kind of pluck things out of the air. Like sometimes you hear people in the United States uh, say like, oh yeah, I was, I was told by my health department that it's illegal for me to, to use a statum. And it's like, what? So it's like, okay, so if you used a statum, no, like we all know that a statum is, it's an autoclave, it's, it's safe, it's verifiable. It, it's like, a, it's a piece of medical equipment, dental equipment that's used widely uh, around the world. And it's like, so you're gonna say that if you use that statum, which would be, um, you know, I guess illegal in a sense, like that's unsafe, you know? And it's like, sometimes you have to stop and think and try to convince the, the regulators to be like, this is actually much safer. And you're telling me that I can't use this thing that is the, the safest option in, in someone's opinion. So sometimes the, the goalposts can move in really ridiculous ways. Sometimes you can have regulations against certain kinds of piercings just because people are, are maybe like personally uncomfortable with the concept of people piercing their genitals or uh, doing different things like that. So yeah, the, the line of like legal and illegal is maybe more of like a, an activism kind of a line or like a, a, a personal contact kind of a line. Um, and trying to say like, well, let's let's talk about why you think this needs to be illegal, and I'll I'll tell you about maybe why the community thinks that this is a, a, a positive thing and not a negative thing. Try to get those things changed. When it comes to the other stuff, that's like the actual work itself. Uh, I, some people might look outside of their own discipline and think like, well, I'm a body piercer, and I've I've run that down and, and tried to perfect whatever I can, you know, whatever perfect means. Um, so if you're doing something outside of that or a, adjacent to that discipline, like if you're doing tongue splits or you're doing implants, whether it's legal, illegal, unregulated, whatever, some people might be like, well, they're doing something different that I don't do. So that means that they're probably doing something wrong or unsafe. And sometimes that's like a local marketing where they want to just make a competitor look bad. Sometimes people are doing unsafe work and it's because they don't have access to mentorship. They don't have access to be able to have public conversations that, that, that might improve their work. Um, so it can get pretty sticky. And also, mm -hmm. I think that, um, again, not everyone's afforded the same uh, level of messiness. So um, as I've experienced this in other industries as well, but it's just like, as a woman, when I growing up, I felt like I had more at stake than some of my male, cis male counterparts. I wasn't afforded more space to make mistakes. And then the more intersectional oppressions that happen, the less mistakes you're afforded to make because you have more to prove because you've got all of these things of identity that you're bumping up against in these spaces. And so I think like 
that and also just um, when you uh, thank you for sharing the one person that was like no I'm doing this and if I go to jail or not it's yeah. like that is where that those conversations about like not hiding what you're doing and talking with people what you're doing so your story is heard because if that person hadn't shared with you their story and like what they're doing something had happened where does that story go and it becomes this other thing that somebody yeah. else didn't build up so like that's where these like conversations of messiness and sharing and troubleshooting are like important because the stakes are not the same for each body well yeah. you're, you're very right I mean even to this day Ryan has high standards you know he's a he's a perfectionist with high mm. standards I joke that he's a diva but to <laughs> everyone else he's oh you know he's very he's meticulous and high standards me on the other hand I'm over emotional mm. I'm hysterical I have a what? short I have a short I do have a bit of a short fuse I have a short fuse uh -huh. you know it's oh you can't sometimes it's like it, there have been times in my career where it's been like oh sometimes you just can't talk to her and I've never felt like I'm someone that can't be approached mm -hmm. or can't be talked to or who isn't reasonable and yet, whenever I foray into something that I feel passionate about, I feel like I'm really treading the line with just being um, branded as the angry woman. Mm. And it's it's so easy to get labeled as the angry woman. And then once you're the angry woman, it's it's hard to undo. And then you have to ask if you even want to undo it. And right. so you just give up and just be <laughs> passionate about whatever you're passionate about. But even the, just those differences, it's still yeah. so apparent. Yeah, yeah. So. What would you say were, were some of the more challenging things that you experimented with? Or what were some of the things where you were maybe worried that you would get uh, unwarranted criticism? Me? Yeah. Well, I don't do um, body mod work. I've never done body mod work. I think the furthest I've ever gone into that is, you know, a bit of punching and that sort of thing. But even then, it, it was never something that really took off for me just because of the, the demand being so low. I never really got into it. Um, but I think when I started doing genital work, for sure, like I started doing genital piercings, again, when I was 20 years old, when I started doing every other kind of piercing, it was never something that was put on a shelf or out of reach or something that you had to have a certain amount of experience to start doing. I just started doing it the same time I did everything else. And so um, I think for a long time I had to deal with feelings of feeling like, uh, well, first of all, working on people that had penises, not having a penis. I, I literally had a conversation with a male piercer once because I was like, I'm kind of worried about like hurting it or being too forceful with it or, you know, because I just feel it feels alien to me making all these movements. And he was literally like, listen, there is nothing that you're going to do to that guy's dick that he hasn't done himself worse. It'll be fine. Just do whatever you need to do. And like we kind of laughed about it. But like, you know, that was definitely something that made me feel like a bit of an imposter at first, which seems really silly now. Like you don't have to have a penis to pierce penises. I teach a class on piercing penises, so I'm very confident with it now. But when I wrote that class first, I, again, I did feel my PA class, I did feel like, is it okay for me to teach this? Is it okay for me to talk about this? Is it okay with my experience level? Is it okay with the fact that like, there are piercers here that were piercing before I was born and I'm here teaching this? And a huge validating moment for me was, um, I was speaking with John, the piercer at uh, Nirvana in Glasgow. It's a really old shop in Glasgow. He's He opened the studio, I think, either the year I was born or the year before I was born. It's been there that long. And he sometimes refers gentle work to me. And when I found that out, I just wanted to cry. Like, I just wanted to cry with how, like, 
amazing that was to me because I went and got pierced by him when I was 16 you know like it was because you had to be sick like 16 or up there wasn't a consent thing so I went and got my lip pierced with him when I was 16 I tried to get a job there and uh, they weren't hiring and he wrote me like a handwritten letter that got sent in the post like back when people posted stuff like it was a rejection letter but it was like a letter that said you know don't give up keep trying and he didn't have to do that and when I mentioned it to him, he couldn't remember doing it, but I was like, but you did, and I still have the letter. Yeah. And, uh, and it was you just- You should frame that and put it on your shop wall. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was, his name was in the, the, the history class that we took the other day with Mariana. So just like seeing yeah. his name there and, and someone who's completely disconnected from the community and has never really sought to take part for, for well over- It was like a gauntlet worldwide referral and it was like yeah. these are some safe safe piercers that are you know gauntlet adjacent in these different countries and it was like glasgow scotland john Nirvana. and, and like this really is cool. someone who's not who who isn't like he doesn't take part in the community he doesn't come to conferences who it doesn't have social media but they're there doing the work and having that validation from them to have them be like i don't really do a lot of genital stuff now go and see lola like lola does a lot more than me and to get referrals and have him say like this is my number if you ever need something in a certain size i've got a lot of back stock that for me was more validating than being in front of like a hundred people teaching a class or having a piercer who's super famous say that they like my work like being acknowledged by someone who'd been working in the city that i live in since the year i was born that for me was probably like the best thing that happened to me professionally to hear like you you refer like you tell people that i'm safe to do this and that that was like real next level validation for me that i didn't really have before that i think because there was always that thought of there have been people that have been doing general work for longer than me so why don't you just go to one of them so to actually get referrals from one of them was like mind-blowing I, I think genital piercing experimentation is a it, it's a conversation that i hear much more frequently today like lola said when when she started piercing when i started piercing it wasn't genital piercing and not genital piercing it was just piercing and that was just like part of it like you might do them you might not it's more like what people are asking you to pierce on them uh it seems like it's it's much more commonplace now when people are kind of younger in their careers where maybe they're they're not starting with that uh, whether it's uh, an internal confidence or whether it's uh, maybe like the the business being like well you're you're either cleared or not cleared or, or whatever some states have specialty licenses that are required that you have to have a certain level of experience with to be able to do genital piercing so there are lots of different reasons but we had a conversation with someone last night where they were saying oh i've been piercing for a few years and i, I really want to start doing genital piercing how would i experiment safely and um, you know, we had to just kind of say the thing is like, not all experimentation has to involve a needle. Mm. It, you know, even if you have a friend that doesn't want to get something, you know, poked in the in their genitals, like you could still maybe say, would it be okay if I did some marking and some, you know, tissue manipulation, lined up some tools, did some different stuff, so I get some sort of level of experimentation. So um, that that level of messiness doesn't always have to involve blood being messy. No. It can just be like. You have to sometimes get comfortable touching another person's body in a certain way. You have to be able to get comfortable like taking on that responsibility of like, you know, uh, managing someone's body and supporting someone's body. So do you have any thoughts on that? Did you say that you, you don't have a lot of exp experience offering genital work? Yeah, mine's, I feel like mine is more tied to um, the shop that I'm in and that I've slowly watched in Tampa, Florida, a lot of the queer culture get erased because of uh, buying out Florida gentrification people moving like and so I've slowly seen that go away and then being in a strip mall 
central area like we just don't get that a lot in our shop and also when somebody comes in um, even though we have a consultation because four to six weeks sometimes for ordering jewelry because we don't have that on stock also prevents a lot of those things on follow-through so um, I have uh, I haven't had as much experimentation with it well not experimentation but with that because of that I have gotten two but what I've done with clients has been like this is this is my number four and this is where my experience is and so um, I would like to bring in another piercer with me on this and that do this perform this together if you feel comfortable and then of course you can say like and we'll waive the piercing fee and these sorts of things and so that's how I've been able to do more of that um, but then the other thing is like I recently started um, I had been doing this since uh, my undergrad but I've been piercing my own packers and I find that that's like, I finally put a video up where I was like, this is incredibly validating because I can envision um, intact or not intact or, and play with all these piercings on all of this thing. And then other folks that might have other prosthetics if they come in, those can get pierced. And then, so that becomes a way of envisioning and playing with it. And it's still needle control. There's still mm -hmm. sometimes like, especially on those silicone, like you wanna kind of scoop on some of those to get, to make sure that the beads are laying right and yeah. um, that they're flush against it so that you don't have that play because it's not gonna deal with swelling and stuff. And so I feel like you can play in these other ways as well and still offer clients um, some validating things as well. Yeah, no, no matter what the environment, if you you're in like this amazingly designed, well, um, well supplied studio, every piece of jewelry, every piece of sterilization, every piece of equipment that you might want, you still shouldn't have it just all theory and then you're just gonna jump right in and just like, well, I'm just gonna do an apodravia. Like there should be lots of adjacent experience, like, I like to say adjacent too much, I think, but um, experimentation where it's like, well, first you wanna like hold a penis and know that you can <laughs> brace that tissue roll the tissue around maybe use a needle blank or a taper and just kind of press and see like how that tissue reacts to it mark and then you know look at the marks from different angles have the client look at it and try to think out will the person be able to live with this will i be able to perform this do i really have a, a proper concept of jewelry sizing and, and all these different elements that go into it you don't have to just jump in with both feet you can dip a toe in and you can start to experiment and you can start to build up some skills safely um, but it's, it's all about, I think you have to be honest with yourself, you have to be honest with your, your models, the people that you're working with, your, your clientele. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I um, developed offering genital piercings just the same as really any other piercing. Like there was a time in my career when I would turn down certain things because I didn't know how to do them and I hadn't seen them being done before. And even though all the theory was there and I felt pretty sure that I could do it, I just wasn't at that point yet. And that kind of grew and changed over time. Mm -hmm. And when you say about being honest with yourself, I think it's also important to be honest with your clients. Mm -hmm. um, I was speaking to this about a piercer the other day and saying, well, sometimes you can't do something and that's fine, but it's important not to tell the client they can't have something done, mm. which is something that I think we've all seen happen before where someone says, I was told I couldn't get pierced and that <sighs> it just wasn't an option. Right. Whereas if there's something that I'm looking at and I'm thinking, this could definitely be done, I just can't do it. Like, you have to be real comfortable saying that to people and saying like, this is this is my inadequacy, not, not your 
you know, physical situation that's making this not possible, and maybe have people to refer folk to. When um, you're building trust like that, I feel like, the, what about those moments where the clients go, oh my gosh, thank you so much for telling me that. Like, I look forward to working with you on other things, but thank you for your honesty. Yeah. Like, when I, I feel like when people say that, I'm like, oh, okay. That sort of, like, imposter syndrome or, like, not wanting to give up on, you're like, I can do anything, I've got to prove that I can do this, when you're just honest about it and they return and say, like, thank you so much for being honest with me. That feels better than doing a botched piercing or being like, it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that responsible, irresponsible line is when you look at an anatomical feature, regardless of, of what it really is, and you, you kind of have that thought in your mind where it's like, well, it's borderline. Um, I'm not sure if I can do it. And then it's like the, the fork in the road. It's like, the, well, I'm going to do it anyway, and then see what happens. Um, in, if you take that fork, it has to be with a well-informed client who's choosing that fork of the path with you. If they say like, I'm comfortable, you know, if this is the first time you've ever tried to, to do this, I'm comfortable because you've, you've told me. Um, whether it's a discount or not, whether there's a mentor involved or not, or, or whatever, but it's like, it's the, the client making that decision with you. Um, you don't want to just like jump into it and be like, I hope this goes right because this is the first time I've ever done a, a triangle or a, or a whatever. Um, then the other path being like, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think that I'm the right person to do this right now. Be honest with the client, be honest with yourself, and, and say it kind of out, out loud. I don't have any experience with this one. Um, I, I'm not even really sure if I can say that you as a, as a client can get this or cannot get this. I would say seek out maybe a piercer with more experience. I don't always think that it's your responsibility as the piercer to find them, that next piercer to talk to, because like you yeah. might not have the working relationship with someone, you might not know someone well enough to trust that and they you have need to experience. And be careful with who you endorse, because if you haven't seen them work, right. that's also Because a they might not have ever done I, it either. If, and if possible, I like to give people potential leads or next steps yeah. to look at, but I'm very yeah. careful not to say, go to this person and they'll do a great job I like to if give I don't actually know that they will. To say, try um, to talk to another piercer, but ask to see maybe photos of the work they've done before, ask their experience, mm -hmm. ask them for a full evaluation, and don't feel like you have to choose someone just because they say like, yeah, I can, I can do that for you. Like, get some sort of verification. And like what Kale mentioned about um, telling people how many you've done of something, I don't keep an exact record of those things, but I had a, a customer interaction, I think last year, and um, they wanted a triangle piercing done, and they said, well, how many triangle piercings have you done? And I was like, I'm not 100% sure, but probably about 25. And they were like, well, that doesn't seem like a lot. Compared to like and a And I was like, well, yeah. if, you, if you can find someone yeah. like in... Scotland that's done more than 25 triangles, go to them. If you can find someone in the UK that's done more than 25 triangles, go to them because the there, there really aren't that many. Yeah. And, um, and then asking for photos and things. I have um, like more than a handful of pictures of triangle piercings, but um, I often don't get permission to photograph people. I have a photographic release and a lot of people prefer not to be photographed. So I also say to people, I've had questions where clients are like, well, why don't you have photos of all 25? Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, not everyone wants to sign a photo release to have a picture of their yeah. genitals put on the internet. And that's totally up to them, just like I wouldn't force you to have a picture of your genitals on the internet. So sometimes there's this unrealistic expectation where clients are now so educated about vetting that sometimes their expectations drift towards the <laughs> unrealistic, where it's like, well, I've read on the internet that you should have a hundred pictures of this before I agree to And I'm like, yeah. if you can find that person, definitely get pierced by that person because mm -hmm. they're fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, have that. I had the same thing with like, <laughs> I think it was an apodravia. They're like, well, how many have you done? And I was like, I don't, I don't know, a, a dozen? And they're like, that's not I, that I need many. someone with more. And it's like, 
Go go try to find somebody who's done more in New England. And like, there might be some, but it's an extremely short list. But yeah, I don't inflate the amount of work that I've done for yeah. anybody. I'm just honest about it, just yeah. the same. How do you suggest piercers, because I struggle with this sometimes, like, um, when there are not a lot that I necessarily trust, and like, I, I do have a, like, certain people looking for certain uh, folks that can relate to their experience, right? So they come in and I'm like, I don't have that experience, so I don't feel comfortable doing this. Well, where do I go? Are you, do you live in Florida? Do you travel? Do you like, like how do you, how do you navigate some of those spaces? Because there's that, we're talking about that messiness and then that waiting and then that need. So how do you navigate those when there's not necessarily someone to suggest versus these sorts of things? Like I used to see it as more like, well, they're, they're asking and it's like, I, I have to find them their, you know, perfect piercer for, for, for them. And I had to stop doing that because mm -hmm. like, I, I just don't think that there is the perfect piercer for, for everyone out there. It's like, it might be someone that they connect with, someone that has just the right experience. But I, I think that the client has to go on that journey on their own sometimes. If there's, if there's someone where it, it's like, I know that this person is really experienced with this thing. But I, I, I had someone get kind of, um, uh, almost upset at me because I didn't refer a client to them because like I didn't I didn't know anything about their studio I didn't know what kind of jewelry they use I, I knew them in passing but I didn't know enough about them to refer my client to them and I just told the client like this isn't a service that I can offer you but you should seek out some people you know you should talk to other piercers and see who feels right for you check their experience ask them you know how many they've done if they have photos or if they have something else that they can talk to you about their experience but um, you know, my job is to pierce my clientele, and if I turn away my clientele, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, um, I, this god of piercing, can't do this, so obviously you can't get it done because there's something wrong with your body. It's just like, I just don't think that I'm the right fit for you. It's not something that I feel comfortable offering you, but there are piercers out there who might do a fantastic job. I don't have a list of them to give you, but like, here are some maybe tools, some things that you can look for to find the right piercer for you. Did I say that okay? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's start maybe winding it down uh, a little bit. Um, uh, where can people find you in, in the world? They can't find me. Yes, they cannot <laughs> find you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add before I forget, because I'll definitely forget, that when Kale mentioned they were a ceramicist, and I was, my first That's question... That's a nice word, ceramicist. Ceramicist, like turquoise. <laughs> um, so uh, you'd mentioned that you'd never been to APP before, which is exactly the first thing I wanted to ask you, is if you'd got a chance to go to the Mr. Sebastian exhibit that the Body Piercing Archive did, because... Uh, which obviously you didn't because you didn't go to the event. But if you get a chance, you should definitely um, look into it because Mr. Sebastian was also a ceramicist, which I didn't know. And there was a collection of his ceramic pieces in the exhibit and they were amazing. They were so like joyful and fun and playful. And it was just like... This is a good place to, pl to plug Paul King's book too because yes. I'm fairly certain he has photos of that ceramic work. And you mentioned early on in the podcast about how do I take these skills as a ceramicist and put it into piercing. And I was like, one of the most famous piercers in the community was a gifted ceramicist. Okay. You know, so it's just right. one of those funny things where you write off your transferable skills and you think there's no overlap here. All of this art, you know, artistic work that I do, all this creativity that I have, Ooh. <laughs> it has nothing. It, it has nothing possibly to do with piercing, and that couldn't be more wrong in the end. And I think you just, when you unlock how to link those things together, um, work can just get so much more joyful for you. Yeah. Um, so 
if, if you haven't seen it, um, I would take the opportunity to take a look at the, the Mr. Sebastian Ceramics collection if yeah, you get a chance. Because I am on it. It'd be, it would probably be really enjoyable. Yeah, Paul, yeah. King's, Paul King's book is a great resource for okay. that. But it just shows, like when, when you were telling me a little bit about your background, mm -hmm. you mentioned ceramics, like I instantly hear, well, it's, it's handwork. Mm -hmm. So it's like if someone is a musician, you know, they're skilled with their hands. If you're a ceramicist, skilled with your hands. Um, I, I, a former apprentice of mine was a, a kitchen worker. So then I got mm -hmm. the sense of like, well, you know, you have a sense of like the whole like, you know, sharp moving chef, you know, had a sense of that, like working with your hands and right. sharps control and things like that. Had a lot of transferable skills, surfaces. Yeah. all kinds of stuff like that. So try not to um, think that you don't have anything to, to bring to the world of body art because there are lots of transferable skills right. there. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, Thank so, you. where can people find you, especially now that you've made um, the move? Yeah, I guess I'm going to be, um, like I've got a mini job set up at Titanon. Hopefully that's a good culture fit and we mesh up because um, definitely the uh, process for uh, residency and that is long and uh, arduous out here in Berlin with the, uh, um, those sorts of things. So hopefully that'll be um, a good home at least a, or a trans transitional space. I'm really excited to work with the, the folks um, out there and it's in a, um, one of the oldest historic gay districts in Berlin. So lots of large gauge, lots of Jennies. Um, I'm really excited about that. I think that they're gonna start bringing in some gold. So that for me is that hybridization. Um, and then uh, I've also connected because of here to, uh, that was the other puzzle piece was to find some ceramic shops that um, I work with. And um, somebody just walked up to me and said, you need to meet this person and go talk with them. I shot them an email and I'm gonna meet with them next week. So really cool. hopefully I'll be able to do both of those things coming up here soon. Um, any social media, anything that you want to share? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm on uh, at Fleshpiece. Um, if you look at fleshpiece.rituals, I don't really post on that, but just Fleshpiece. Um, and then the other um, Instagram, if anybody has any interest, especially folks that might be in the United States, is at Tailgate Projects, which was a, um, a seven-year project that I did that was in social practice that had performances out of a truck bed um, with over 30 artists performing out of it as a exhibition space and smoke, queer smoke signal in the south. So both of those two things, tailgate projects and uh, at flesh piece are great. Okay, yeah. Great. Um, well, I want to thank everyone who woke up early uh, to, <laughs> to come to this, especially after party night. Um, thank you very much. And um, you can find me at ryanpva.com and piercing wizard podcast, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I hope to see you all again next year. I hope to see you next year and we can maybe touch base again and you can tell me how your, your yeah. first year in, in Germany has <laughs> been for you. Yeah. And you I will see in my dreams. <laughs> um, and I just want to say thank you all yeah. for participating. And thank you. Thank you. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>